Mike Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Don Kulik will join us to discuss death in the rainforest. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Show. Well, what happens when a language dies? Well, joining us today to discuss one such language is Professor Don Kulik. Professor Kulik is the author or editor of more than a dozen books on the topic that range from the lives of transgender sex workers to the anthropology of fat. He's conducted extensive anthropological fieldwork in Papua New Guinea, Brazil, and Scandinavia as the recipient of numerous grants and honors, including an EH Fellowship, an A.W. Mellon Foundation Guest Fellowship, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He's currently a Distinguished University Professor of Anthropology at Uppsala University in Sweden, where he directs the research program Engaging Vulnerability. He has penned the new book, A Death in the Rainforest, How a Language and a Way of Life Came to End in Papua New Guinea. And uh, Professor Kulik, very pleased to have you today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written here, A Death in the Rainforest. How did you come to write this book? I think, you know, I grew up as a child in California, and I, a lot of people, I think, grew up reading National Geographic magazines. And I would always look at the pictures and I would see photographs of very exotic people. And I think like a lot of people, I fantasized about what it must be like to live in a place that was very different from where I lived and to talk to people who were very, very different from anyone who I would ever meet. And so when I became, and I got interested in anthropology, which is one of the few professions that actually pays you to do that. So I was delighted to discover that anthropology existed as a profession. And I went to Papua New Guinea um, to study languages. And the reason I went to Papua New Guinea is because there are more languages spoken in Papua New Guinea, which is a small country. It's about the size of the state of California, and it has about 9 million people. But there are about 800 languages spoken there. And that is a remarkable situation. Um, most, many of the languages, most of them are not documented. So none of them have been written traditionally. Once Western colonizers came to the country from about mid-1800s and missionaries came, then they started learning some of the largest languages in order often to translate the Bible. Um, but before then, they weren't written, and many of them remain unwritten. So for me, it appealed to my sense of adventure um, and my sense that no one really had done this before. In, in, you know, No one had described lots of languages in Papua New Guinea. So I went there basically to look at a language that nobody knew anything about. And why was the language been overlooked? Well, as I say, there's about 800 languages in the country, and it takes a long time to learn a language. Um, Many of the languages in Papua New Guinea are spoken by groups of 500 people or less. And the reason for that is not the reason that one thinks of immediately, that these people were very isolated from one another, they didn't have contact. They had a lot of contact. 
But for some reason that nobody quite understands, Papua New Guineans have chosen language as a way to differentiate themselves from one another. So whereas many people choose religion, you know, I'm different from you because I have a different religion or I have, different, I have a different cuisine or I have a different way of dressing. In Papua New Guinea, people decided that they're different from one another because they speak differently. And over the course of many centuries of this kind of this, this, this value for linguistic difference, different languages arose. And so there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. And as I say, many of them just are not documented. Hmm. And how distinct are all these languages from one another? They're very, very, very distinct. So in the, in the, in the place I, I live, for example, a village called Gapun, it's in the middle of the rainforest. And to get to the nearest village, you have to walk two hours in one direction. And then in another direction, you walk for an hour and then you go by canoe. And those are the two nearest villages. The village languages, each of those villages speaks a completely different language. And the languages are as different from one another as, say, Albanian is different from Russian is different from English. So they're completely unintelligible, they're completely grammatically different, and they're completely mutually unintelligible, unless, of course, you learn them. And that's one of the things that Papua New Guineans always have been. They've been very multilingual. So until the national language entered the country, which it began to do in the, in the mid-1800s, it's a plantation language, it's a pidgin language that was created in the mid-1800s, before that language entered the country, people were very multilingual because they had to be. They had to learn other people's languages. And when I first went to the village I worked in in the 1980s, I, I worked with old men who were born in the 1930s, and they would be able to speak four completely different languages fluently and understand two or three more. Doesn't that make each language a little bit tenuous in terms of how long it might survive? I mean, Again, I mean, languages are very, very delicate and very trellised and very ancient things. I mean, it takes a long time to develop a language. It takes many hundreds of years to develop a language. Think of English. It didn't just arise, and it, it took a long time for it to develop. So these languages were very, very stable for many, many hundreds of years. And, of course, what changed is the coming of white people. And in Papua New Guinea, that occurred from the middle of the 1800s. And up in the highlands, the, the, the mountainous parts of the the country, the first contact between people in the country and white people occurred in the 1930s. So this was a very recent development. And one of the results of colonization has been the introduction of partly of English, because Papua New Guinea was ruled colonially by Australia. It's, you know, it's, it, 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 it exists. It's above Australia. It's not in Africa, which a lot of people think, just because it's New, it's New Guinea. Um, it's, it, it, it's, in, it's in the Pacific Ocean. And Australia, Australia was the, were the sort of the colonial overseers of, of Papua New Guinea. They introduced English, but as I say, there was already a language there called Tokpisin, which is a plantation language. It's like Jamaican Creole. When you get a lot of men from different different language groups and you put them together on plantations to do work, which is what the colonialists did, they create a language themselves, and that's called a pidgin language. It's a it's a created language. It's 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 made by men who work on plantations to communicate with one another. And when that language then 
gets back, goes back to the villages, it eventually gets taught for children and they learn it as their first language. And that's what ha- that's the process in Papua New Guinea. So this language called Tokpisin, which means talk pigeon or bird talk, it's the language that is now the national language. One of the, it's the most important national language of Papua New Guinea. And it is, is, that's the language that many villages throughout the country are switching to. So they're giving up these old, ancient languages that they've been speaking for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, and they're, they're going to talk this in. And the book that I, that I wrote is, is a description of why that happens. How does that happen that people who really aren't going anywhere, because these people are not leaving, they're staying there. And the people I worked with, for example, they've been living in the same rainforest area for you know as long as anyone can remember, maybe even thousands of years. And yet now suddenly they're not teaching their native language to their children anymore. And the children are now speaking Tokpisin, this pidgin language. The decision not to teach the language, is it some practicality or is it something else? No, that's that's one of the reasons why immigrants, for example, when immigrants come to the United States, many of them decide not to teach their language. So if they come speaking Russian, if they come speaking Spanish, if they come speaking, you know, Yiddish, Chinese, they, they decide to not teach their children their, their native languages because they think that their children need to learn English in order to get ahead, in order to succeed in school. But the situation is very different in Papua New Guinea because there are no, there, there's not a lot of schools out in the, in the countryside, which makes up the majority of the country. And so the dynamics there are very different. So in the village I work in, and this is, I describe this in the book, people did not make a decision to stop teaching their kids to speak this language. Nobody dislikes the language. Nobody thinks it's ugly. Nobody thinks it's a strange or you know, awful language. And also there's no schools. So it's not like they're not teaching their kids their language so their kids will succeed in schools. The reason is, it's, it's a very complicated reason, but it has to do with the consequences of conversion to Christianity, where where people have been basically told by missionaries that in heaven people speak the language of white people, which the villagers believe is Tokpisin. So they want to, they basically want to get to heaven. And the reason they want that is because one of the questions that they've all asked themselves from their first encounters with white people over about a hundred years ago. And as I say, they don't see them very often. I mean, in the village I've worked in, there's maybe been 10 white people throughout their entire history who they've even seen, but they, they understand that white people have things so white people have things that they don't have. White people have airplanes, white people have money, white people have clothes, white people have weapons. And they wonder, why is it that white people have these things? And one of their conclusions, which of course has been fomented and encouraged by Christian missionaries, is that we have these things because we are Christian and that we have a, we have a, we have a powerful spiritual entity that gives us these things. And I don't know that missionaries actually come right out and say that, but that is the implication that many, many people in Papua New Guinea have, have drawn from colonialization and from missionaries. How quickly are languages disappearing then? Well, I, I, this is a, it's a difficult thing to say because it's not always very clear what a, you know, what a language is. But what we do know is that languages disappear very quickly. In Australia, most of the indigenous languages now are gone. They're extinct. In North America, there were hundreds, probably thousands of native North American languages. The overwhelming majority of them are extinct. And this is because, again, of the processes of colonialization and also of, of, of conversion to Christianity. So these are processes... And 
capitalism, of course, is, is important here. These are processes that for various reasons result in the deaths of these indigenous languages. Now, sometimes, of course, these languages die because the people are killed. There are you know, cultural genocides and people, people are killed and then their languages die. But in many other cases, it's much more complicated. And one of the, the points of this book is to, is to basically document the process through which a people come to stop speaking their language, not because they're forced, not because anybody comes in and says you can't speak it anymore, but because their understandings of their place in the world have resulted in them giving up their language. And as I say, it's there are linguists. You know, there are, there are alarms that linguists raise these days, and they say basically that 90% of the world's languages are in danger of extinction within a hundred years. Now, I you know that that may seem very exaggerated, and I think in some senses it, it, it is exaggerated. But what linguists say is that this this becomes explainable or explicable when you realize that. 96% of the people in the world, one of the world's hundreds largest languages, so English or Chinese or French or Portuguese or Spanish. And that means that the 4% of the population left speak the overwhelming majority of the languages. So a lot of these small languages are spoken by you know, small groups of people. The largest language spoken in Papua New Guinea, for example, is spoken by about 200,000 people. That's the biggest one. That's the biggest one. So what linguists say is that there, these processes of language change and language death are actually occurring at accelerated rates these days. We, we can't predict the future, but it's, this seems to be an increasing problem. I know it's an increasing problem in Papua New Guinea, for example. And so what's lost when we lose a language then? Well, I think that's one of the things that I discuss in some detail in the book. Um, linguists lament the loss of languages, as I think we all you know, should do, because languages are very, very, um, you know, they're, they're unique things. Each language is unique. But I think that to focus just on the language is perhaps somewhat mistaken, because what, what is lost when a language is lost is really the last remnants of a culture that has basically been broken and crushed. And so I would, instead of talking about what is lost when a language dies, I would want to know what is lost when speakers lose their, their culture, their traditions, their sense of identity about who they were, their, their sense of their own history. Those are the questions that I think are the important ones. And that's one of the things that I make, that one of the points that I make in the book, that the people in Gapfun, the village that I worked with, you know, a lot of their culture died a long time before their language began to die. So to just lament the loss of their language is to, in a sense, be condescending and in a sense be patronizing because they didn't teach, their, they're not teaching their language to their children, not because they don't want to, not because they're made not to, but because they have ideas that have been developed in connection with the West, in connection with capitalism, in connection with missionaries, in connection with colonialists, even though they're very far away from these processes. But they know a lot about them. They know a lot more about us than we know about them. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is to give people a sense of how you know, Western culture is seen at its extreme periphery, at its extreme periphery. But they know, they think they know a lot about us, but we know nothing about them. 
I mean, I think that the loss of languages is a, is a cause for lament. But I think that what happens when, 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 when one fetishizes languages and focuses on the languages as a system is that you lose, let, you lose track of the fact that these are very historical and political developments. I think that if anyone wants to revise their language, if they want to revitalize their language, they should be given all the support in the world to do so. But what I think is, is, is misguided is to just say that languages should not be lost because, you know, again, if people don't, if don't want, if they don't want to speak their language, then who are we to say that they shouldn't? I mean, languages should not be put in zoos. And what are you going to do? Make, you know, you can't make people do things they don't want to do. And the reason they're not doing it is not because they don't like their language, but because the forces, the, you know, the forces of globalization have really overpowered them. And one of the, one of the, one of the points of the book is to really focus attention on those forces that have influenced people that are so far away from them. I mean, these people have really very little contact with almost anyone, certainly any kind of Western, um, you know, any, any, any capitalist, any colonialist, any missionary. Missionaries don't go there anymore, and they very rarely went even when they did up until about the 1980s. And so there's a very, 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 very liminal, a very peripheral kind of contact, but the contact is very ideological. So people know a lot. They hear rumors. They think they know about white civilization and white people and white culture, and they want to be kind of a part of that. But the problem is, is that, you know, global, globalization, it takes things away, but it doesn't give much back. The take-home message of the book is, is, is basically to inform people that there are people in the world that, you know, we should think about. We should think about them partly because they think a lot about us. As I say, they they know a lot about us. We don't know very much about them. So I think that there's a sense that we have an obligation and a responsibility to at least inform ourselves that there are people in the world who have their own views about forces that are beyond their control. So that's one of the things that I describe in the book. It's like, how do these people, how, you know, how does it work for them when, when they're in the middle of a rainforest, in the middle of a swamp, they don't have a lot of contact with, you know, with, with, with any white people, but white white culture, you know, colonialism, globalization, it really does impact them in ways that have led to the fact that they're losing their language. And again, what is lost when a, a language is lost is, I think, the last remnants of a, of a, of a culture that has, has been broken. And it has been broken by forces that these people cannot control. And that's why I think that, you know, to say that, oh, they should, see, you know, they should, they should keep talk, speaking their language to their children. It's such a shame that they don't. That's all true. But I think that we have to temper that sort of lamentation with the realization that these people are just trying to do their best and get on the best they can in the world that they find themselves in. Uh, we were just talking with Professor Don Kulik. He has written the new book, A Death in the Rainforest, How a Language and a Way of Life Came to an End in Papua New Guinea. And Professor Kulik, very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.